0: If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We are picking up after a six-week break. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, as we just sang, Jesus is the Son of God. And we do bow down now and humbly adore. Father, would you speak to us through your word? Would you give us growing understanding of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we should respond to his person and his work? Father, would you open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I spend some time on titles of uh, sermons, because titles help me remember, help me focus, and sometimes titles come quickly, and sometimes they do not, and sometimes they need to be changed, and today is one of them, so... It's no longer a preview of coming attractions. To be sure, that will be in there. But a better title, I've come to realize, is One Shining Moment. One Shining Moment. And the electronic copy of the bulletin that goes out early in the week to those who weren't able to be here will reflect that new title. One Shining Moment. Well, six months ago, an event captured the attention of the nation. And six months from now something will capture the many, the, uh, the attention of many in the United States. What am I talking about? Well, the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament, also known as March Madness. Now the pinnacle of the event concludes with the two remaining undefeated teams meeting for the championship game, and the TV coverage concludes with a five-minute video of the highlights of the tournament and is always accompanied by the song with these words. The ball is tipped, and there you are. You're running for your life. You're a shooting star. And all the years, no one knows just how hard you've worked, but now it shows. One shining moment, it's all on the line. One shining moment, they're frozen in time. But time is short and the road is long. In the blinking of an eye, ah, that moment's gone. And when it's done, win or lose, you always did your best. Because inside, you knew. One shining moment, you reached deep inside. One shining moment, you knew you were alive. Feel the beat of your heart, feel the wind in your face. It's more than a contest, it's more than a race. And when it's done, win or lose, you always did your best. Because inside you knew, one shining moment, you reached for the sky. One shining moment you knew, one shining moment you were willing to try. One shining moment. Well, our text today is about one shining moment as well. But as we will see, it is not about the glory of man. Rather, it's about the glory of God. We're resuming our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Let's catch up. Where were we last time? Well, with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, we've reached the turning point of Mark's gospel. The continental divide, as it were, is here. From now on, where things will point to the suffering and death of Jesus. It's as if the um, the final destination of Mark in its global positioning system. It's been entered. It's Jerusalem. It's the cross. And Mark's going to find the the direct route there. We've seen Jesus begins to teach, yes, I am the Messiah, the one who has come to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. Well, you know, that didn't sit real well with Peter, and so Peter rebukes Jesus. But then Jesus rebukes Peter for having in mind the things of man and not the things of God. Jesus then goes on to describe the life of one who follows him, a life of self-denial and cross-bearing that doesn't achieve but rather describes a right relationship with God. This hard teaching, the suffering of Jesus and his followers, doesn't fit into the grid that Peter and the other disciples had. And where we left off last was in chapter 9, verse 1. It's a rather enigmatic, that is, hard to understand statement. Let's look at that. Chapter 9, verse 1, And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, here in our text is the immediate fulfillment. It's the transfiguration which immediately fulfills Jesus' statement that's hard to understand, but it doesn't exhaust its meaning as we will see. The transfiguration. I don't often use that word. Does anybody else use that word? Very often. Transfiguration. Let's make a few general comments. Well, of all the events in the life of Jesus... Most have been portrayed in works of art. His birth, his baptism, his teaching, his miracles, his praying, the Last Supper. In fact, yesterday, my family and I were just over at the Cincinnati Museum Center and we saw an um, exhibition on Da Vinci the Genius. And we spent some time understanding of how he did his, his work, The Last Supper. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, His arrest, His trial, His crucifixion. But what about His transfiguration? Has anybody ever seen, as it were, artwork depicting the transfiguration? I sure haven't. How can this moment be portrayed? There is nothing like the transfiguration anywhere else in the Bible in Jewish literature or in the religious literature of the Greco-Roman world. It is utterly unique. No wonder. It's the single, if momentary, revelation of the divine glory of Jesus of Nazareth during his earthly ministry. Before this, there have been many indirect hints of his divinity. Here, there is nothing Here, the divine glory shines from him as he is distinguished from any and every other man. This account of Jesus' transfiguration occurs in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, let's explore Mark's account now as we consider the what, the why, and the so what of the transfiguration of Jesus. And let's do that first of all by reading the passage. I'm going to read initially verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The what of the transfiguration. Let's look at it through a series of five questions. What's happening to Jesus? We see this in verses 2 and 3. In a word, He is transfigured. Now, where are they? Probably Mount Hermon, not too far from Caesarea Philippi. And this high mountain reminds us of Mount Sinai, where Moses beheld the glory of God, as we read earlier from Exodus 24. Well, what is happening to Jesus on this mountain? Again, He is transfigured. Well, what does that mean? It's a glorious alteration in the appearance of, and qualities of Jesus' body. His appearance is changed, as it were, from the inside out. Literally, there is a metamorphosis in Christ, a change of form, a change into a different form, particularly a change of in the form of be. Metamorphosis. It's used two other times in Scripture, in Romans 12, 2, where we are called to be transformed. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we read about being changed from the inside out, from one degree of glory to another. Well, what changed? Jesus' whole being, in particular, His face. There's an illumination that comes from within Jesus. This divine glory is not a reflection as it was with Moses as he came down the mountain. He reflected, as it were, the glory of God. No, this is emanating from Jesus. It's a display of the eternal and essential glory of the Son of God which He had with the Father from before the creation of the world that we read about in John 17. Not only did Jesus' whole being... His face changed, but his clothes became intensely white. Nothing on earth could do it. In Daniel 7, we read of the Ancient of Days and his appearance, and there are echoes here of that, in particular, as Jesus' favorite designation of himself is the Son of Man. Now interestingly, the New Testament pays no attention to the physical appearance of Jesus. His height, His weight, His his, uh, hair color, the length of His beard. It doesn't talk about Jesus' physical appearance, but it certainly talks about His clothes, doesn't it? Swaddling clothes in the manger. Clothes being stripped off at the crucifixion. Here we see his clothes are bleached into a a magnificent brilliance that nothing on earth could do. And so what they are being shown right now, Peter, James, and John, is that Jesus is much more than the Messiah they had imagined. Those of you that uh, are familiar with the side view mirrors on a car, you know what they say, right? Objects in mirror are what? Closer than they appear. Mark is helping us understand that Jesus is much bigger than he appears. Indeed, we are too small, our minds are too limited, our natures are too confined really to grasp the glory and the majesty of God. How does the finite, you and me, how do we compromise? comprehend the infinite, which is now on display in this moment in time. Well, our second question is this, what are Moses and Elijah doing there? Answer, the text tells us they're talking with Jesus. Well, why? Why? Well, most scholars and theologians I believe rightly understand that it's to show that there is a complete unity between Old Testament and New Testament concerning redemption. Moses representing the law and Elijah as the first of the classical prophets. He represents the prophets. In the Old Testament, only Moses and Elijah spoke to God on the mountain. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. The presence of Moses and Elijah manifestly indicates that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the very purpose of God for the world that had been revealed in successive stages in the history of Israel. As one commentator puts it, Jesus is not a walk-on. And if I can continue the basketball analogy, Jesus is a scholarship player. Recruited from day one, who from the beginning to the very end is the most valuable player. Promises made, promises kept, here we see the unity of the Scriptures. God is showing the disciples that the entirety of the Old Testament was bearing witness to Jesus and that He is far greater than either Moses or Elijah. Jesus himself who knows what is going to happen to him has got to be encouraged by this witness of Moses and Elijah. Here we see again Jesus not only fulfills the prophets, Isaiah looking forward to a king and a suffering servant, but also the law in that he would be the one who who executes perfect obedience to the law. So we've seen what is Jesus doing what happens to jesus what are moses and elijah doing there a third question is this what is peter talking about and the answer is he doesn't know mark lets us know that peter doesn't know what he is talking about he spoke without thinking oh my oh my that could be a description i think of many of us me being a chief example he spoke without thinking peter doesn't yet understand jesus he calls him rabbi You see still sees Jesus as a teacher, as a man. Peter wanted to preserve this remarkable moment and continue to bask in this glorious thing that was happening. He recognizes it is good that He is there. He sees the King. He wants the crown for Jesus. He still doesn't want suffering and death. He doesn't want the cross. For Jesus... He certainly doesn't want the cross for himself. And yet, Jesus can't stay on the mountain. My friends, this is the mountaintop experience. We can't live on the mountaintop. It's for a moment in time and Jesus cannot stay on the mountain. He has to go down into the valley in order to climb another hill the hill of Golgotha and take the cross and die for sinners. It is good. Peter is right, but it cannot last, at least for now. Peter is terrified. He acts out of fear. He doesn't yet love Jesus because he doesn't yet understand the extent of Jesus' love for him. One day he will. Only then will Peter be able to love in response And love that will drive out fear as John writes, there is no fear in love. We love because He first loved us. Peter doesn't yet know the extent of Jesus' love. Now here we are in the midst of a seriously profound moment in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. A serious moment, and yet in the midst of this, we have Peter talking without thinking, spewing whatever comes to mind. One commentator says this, the sheer oddity of this bumbling suggestion is itself strong evidence of the story's basic truth. Nobody inventing a tale like this would make up such a comic moment lowering the tone of the occasion in such a manner. Why is it described like this? Because it really was like this. And may that give us encouragement as well, as we are in the presence of the Lord and don't yet do it right. Oh, patience and kindness that God shows His people. But what does God say? It's not just Peter talking. What does God say? Notice there's a cloud. There's a cloud, a symbol of God's presence and his glory. And what do clouds do in the Bible? They both reveal as well as conceal. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. It continues, and a voice came out of the cloud Back in my navy days, and, and Stan and Rex will remember the one MC. Right, you could never hide from the one MC, that general announcing system throughout the ship. And the Air Force had something similar called the giant voice, where you could be on the flight line and still, through it all, hear the voice. God interrupts Peter's talking and says something like this: "Be quiet." Listen. This all leads up to what we talked about before, the indicative and the imperative, a statement and a command. Here you even see the logic of the gospel. What does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, listen to him because he is my beloved son. He's my son, he's the Messiah, he's my beloved son, he's the servant. I can't help but think that this is not only for the benefit of Peter, James, and John, this is also for Jesus' benefit. Remember at the time of his baptism? This is my son, whom I love. Jesus and the others encouraged at this moment. Listen. Listen. Listen, listen to all of his words, but in particular, his recent and ongoing instruction. The necessity of his suffering and their participation in his humiliation. The disciples did not want to hear this. Have you ever noticed that it's easy to listen to what we want to hear? Has anybody got that problem? Husbands got that problem? Only selective hearing, hearing what you want to hear. We all do that. It's easy to listen to what we want to hear. However, in this case, it's emphasized that we need to be told to listen. To listen. Verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. It's Jesus alone, the sole bearer of God's new revelation to be disclosed at the cross and at the resurrection. The emphasis here, again, is on listening to Jesus. Jesus must be allowed to interpret his messianic mission. It is not enough, as it were, to confess Jesus as Christ, as Peter has already done. They must listen to his words about his death and resurrection. It's part of the package deal because he confesses Jesus as Christ and then Jesus turns around and says, Well, this is who Jesus Christ is. Well, now, what happens on the way down the mountain? What goes up must come down, up on the mountain, back down the mountain. Let's read verses 9 through 13. But as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus told them on the way down not to speak of this experience until after he rose from the dead. This is the ninth and last command of silence in the gospel of Mark. After the resurrection, they will speak and they will speak boldly. Until he had risen from the dead, it reminds us that it's only from the vantage point of the cross and the empty tomb that we can really understand the ministry of Jesus. Even though they were confused about rising from the dead, they had to say something, so they asked Jesus about Elijah. They asked about Elijah and not Moses because the very last book of the Old Testament contained a promise that Elijah would come and prepare the way. We read that in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Elijah did come, Jesus is saying, and the promise was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. He's reiterating here that the ministry of the Messiah, he must suffer just as Elijah did when Ahab and Jezebel were after Him, as well as in John the Baptist's life when Herod and Herodias were after Him. Jesus is wanting them to grow in their understanding that Messiah does come twice, first time in weakness and suffering, but the second time in power and glory. Jesus is revising their understanding of the coming of His kingdom. Now, asking these five questions helps us understand, to a degree, what is going on. However, we can't stop with the what. We now have to ask the why. Let's look to the why of the transfiguration. Well, why? I think two reasons. One, to confirm Jesus' ministry. To confirm Peter's confession and Jesus' rebuke of Peter's rejection of that passion prediction. In particular, it's an advanced revelation of Jesus' glory to endorse what He says about the cross, to confirm to them the true identity of Jesus as God's Son, to give a fresh glimpse of unsurpassable glory, unimaginable majesty, dignity, transcendence, and otherness. And the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you go and look at all three accounts of the Transfiguration... They are straining to describe the indescribable. The disciples are slow to understand. They have a grid for how Jesus is, how God's salvation will work. Remember still the idea that the Messiah is a political leader. To break them free from the Roman rule is still prevalent. It's even in the beginning of Acts, are you now going to restore Israel The apostles ask Jesus. The disciples are slow to understand. Jesus must break through their wrong grid so that they can truly hear what he is saying. It's an amazing, literally a dazzling effort to break through. To believe and to follow Jesus We must be good listeners. Jesus has, as it were, intellectual authority over us. Not just what we do, but what we think and believe. Do you hear that? Most people think, yeah, we've got to do what God tells us. Jesus here is saying, you've actually got to listen and believe as well. You've got to think and believe according to me. We must submit our thoughts to the Lordship of Christ. We must not agree just in principle that God's Word is authoritative. We must patiently study and listen to His teaching, always assuming, as it were, we're not getting it. How many of you all are involved right now in some kind of Bible study? Not an academic Bible study, but just observation interpretation and application of God's Word, reading God's Word, going, Lord, what do you want me to know about you and your kingdom? What do you want me to know about me and my sin? What do you want me to know? Do you have that attitude with God's Word? So the why of the transfiguration, to confirm Jesus' ministry, but also to encourage Jesus' followers. To know that Jesus is not simply a man. He is divine. He is the one God-man. To know the disciples' sight of Jesus' glory shows us that not only is he God himself, but he is the way for man to approach the unapproachable glory of God. Moses had wanted to see the glory of God, but God refused. Because sinful humans could not bear the presence of a holy God. You see that in Exodus 33, Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus is the new tabernacle. Jesus is where God and his people meet. Most people believe that there is a God behind the universe, but also that there is a gap or a distance of some kind that cuts us off from that God. And therefore, many religions, as you know, have temples in which the presence of God was mediated. But here on the mountain, we learn not only that Jesus is the God on the other side of the gap, but he is the bridge over the gap. It's to reassure the disciples and readers and to help prepare them for the difficult days ahead. Jesus did not square or line up with their ideas of greatness and glory. But it is a powerful demonstration that despite outward appearances, the person and work of Jesus is absolutely glorious. Over and over, they were in a condition in which their Lord and their cause looked like it was utterly defeated. But here you have a brief lifting of the veil of ordinariness to give a glimpse of the incredible power and glory underneath all of the suffering and service and death. Indeed, this is a preview of coming attractions, of Jesus' return in glory, but also our transportation, as it were, into the very presence of the Lord. Finally, Let's look at the so what of the transfiguration. Indeed, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is profitable, is useful. So, so what, what is the use? What is the profit here? Well, one, the transfiguration is a beautiful picture of biblical revelation. Notice the scene. Again, Jesus is standing between the prophet's and the Apostles. <clears throat> Have any of you all been down to the flood wall in Covington? Uh, if you haven't, I encourage you to do that. It's a, it's a great series of murals about the history of our area. And there's a mural entitled The Meeting at the Point that portrays the gathering by Brigadier, Brigadier General George Rogers Clark, Simon Kenton, Daniel Boone, and Benjamin Logan at the point overlooking the mouth of of the Licking River when they met on November 1st, 1782. There's a picture of Boone and Kenton and Clark and um, Logan together at the point where the Licking meets the Ohio. But here in our text is a picture of Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the prophet, Peter, the Pentecostal preacher, the day of Pentecost, James, the apostle and the first martyr killed by Herod. We read in Acts 12, John, the gospel writer, and as the old song says, the revelator, writer of Revelation, the first and the last human author of the Bible in one place, along with the Bible's supreme subject. Peter, James, and John are witnesses to both the glory, the transfiguration And they will be witnesses of the agony in Gethsemane and then, as it were, from a distance, the cross. The church is the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. This is a picture. You've got the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus right there, the chief cornerstone. And the transfiguration is also a brief stop on the transforming journey of John and Peter. John would speak in his gospel of having seen the divine glory of Jesus. We read in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's gospel, interestingly, has no direct account of the transfiguration but his whole gospel is, in a sense, a commentary on the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter would later speak of being an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty, a reference to the transfiguration and a foretaste of Christ's second coming. You heard it earlier. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known Then, as Sinclair Ferguson says, then they would understand that the power of God would be made known through the weakness of the cross and the glory of Christ made known only through his shame. And finally, the transfiguration is a guarantee. What the disciples witness is a guarantee of even greater glory to come, it's a remedy to apathy, cynicism, and despair. The scene on this mountaintop is God's gracious pledge to us of what lies in store for us. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 4. It indeed is a preview of coming attractions. It's a guarantee of the truthfulness of Jesus, that He means what He says when He both calls us, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden but also when he warns us as we saw at the end of chapter 8 if anyone is ashamed of me and my words I'll be ashamed of you the transfiguration is a glimpse it is one shining moment it is a foretaste it's one shining moment of what Jesus means when he says that the kingdom of God will come with power Now if the future is anything like the past, six months from now, people all over the country, and here in Kentucky in particular, will be devoting themselves to one thing. They will be, for lack of a better or more accurate word, be worshipping one thing. It's what they will talk about, it's what they will think about. It will occupy their time, it will motivate their actions. They will long for their team to win it all, to cut down the nets, and then listen to one shining moment as they watch a recap of the tournament, of their team's accomplishments. They will long to boast and to brag and to declare that they, that is their team, is number one. Well, here's a question for all of us. Are you as devoted to God and the things of God as revealed in the Bible as you are to your favorite college basketball team, to the NCAA tournament? Now, you, and I know not all of you are basketball fans, will then just substitute something else and ask the same question. Are you devoted to God as you are devoted to your job? Your reputation. Your bank account. What are you devoted to? For those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ and are trusting in Him alone for salvation, then you can look forward with absolute certainty and confidence not to just one shining moment, but rather one shining eternity in fellowship with God and with the people of God. My friends, Jesus' transfiguration is a glimpse and a guarantee of the reality that the true song of the glory of God and the good of His people will never end. One shining moment will be one shining and never-ending eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word in which is recorded a glimpse of the inherent glory of the eternal Son of God. And Father, we thank you that you have made a way that we sinful people can be in your presence through the mediatorial work of jesus christ father we thank you that indeed he's not only on the other side of the gap but he is the bridge that bridges the gap oh father may we be encouraged that this is a glimpse of our future and a guarantee of the glory to come father may this help us now as we continue to walk by faith and not by sight, and as we endure trials and difficulties and suffering. Father, enable us with joy to follow our Savior from suffering to eventual glory. For we pray in His name. Amen.